All right, good to be here. So I actually have been to this place before, Deer Creek State Park. I don't know if any of y'all have ever been here. My last time here, gosh, nine years ago. Nine years ago. I was a senior in high school. I was, so I mean, I'm a, I'm a nerd through and through, right? And uh, I was here for this thing called Envirothon. So the last time I was in this place, our school placed fifth in the state, which sounds good, but actually we, we were named for first, so we lost. If you ain't first, you're last, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, yes, so I did graduate from Ohio State. I do want to point out, though, that I think we have a UC contingent here tonight. I just saw him roll up. Can we get a wave here from the Bailey's? Yes. Awesome. Awesome. Small but mighty. Small but mighty tonight. All right. Very good. So we're talking about two kingdoms at war here tonight, and I'm going to start us off. With a story, we're coming from the scriptures, and I think this is in your handout. It's coming from 2 Kings chapter 6. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God, this is the prophet Elisha, the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king, so he was on his guard in such places. And this enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, Will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord the king, said one of the officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your own bedroom. Go find, find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back, he's in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God got up, though, and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, O oh Lord, open his eyes so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. O Lord, open his eyes so he may see. This story of Elisha and his servant is the crux of my talk to kick us off tonight, and really the crux of this whole weekend for two kingdoms. We're like the servant in the story, spiritually blind. Spiritually blind. We know what it's like to see with our, our bodily eyes and materialize, right? I see, I see you, you see me. Oh, some better than others, you know, some, some of us need glasses. But we're spiritually blind. You know, to use kind of a, 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 vogue, a vogue comparison here, you're familiar with wokeness to some degree. Right? Okay, all right. Thank you for some chuckles. Okay, good. Okay, so, I mean... The whole thing with wokeness is about being enlightened in your own mind, is being rationally enlightened to the systems of power and oppression in the world according to racial and gender lines, right? And you know, and it moves from that to this thing about like needing liberation politically. Well, the analogy is actually quite direct for us because they, they became Christianity. They stole it from us. Uh, we, we're supposed to be the woke ones who have our eyes opened, although opened spiritually speaking. Opened spiritually to see the bonds of oppression 
to the world, the flesh, and the devil in our own lives and in the lives of the, uh, those around us. And not only that, to see the need for the liberation of Christ in that. That's true wokeness. Um, you know, our spiritual asleepness is, this is true oppression. That's what I'm saying. Okay? And life in Christ, that is true liberation. Everything else is secondary to that. Everything else is secondary to that. And now, I want to share just a moment of how I've seen this true be true in my own life. So I grew up in a good Catholic family. Never missed Mass on Sundays. Never missed prayer before meals. Um, but despite that, I uh, decided to give the world a try and listen to it and kind of indulge my desires, uh, particularly in high school, as, as we are told to do today uh, in our culture. And uh, I did that, and well, thankfully, through the mercy of God, after some amount of time, I was able to see how unsatisfying, how dark that has been, that was for me. And you've probably experienced something similar in your own life at some point, otherwise you wouldn't be here tonight. God opened my eyes to see how blind I was, paradoxical as that sounds, to see how I literally was a slave to my own desires, a slave essentially to the devil, be through that. I was a slave, I was dead. And thanks be to God, Christ came in, reorganized everything, and totally uh, began setting me free. And, you know, that was in high school, came into college and, and SBO and beyond. I want to say that God has continued to enlighten me and, and, and open the eyes of my own heart. He's, and what he's done in that is revealed to me the enemies of his kingdom arrayed against him and arrayed against me. But more importantly, like the servant in the story, revealed to me the power of God lined up to crush the enemy. But even better than that, revealed just a glimpse to me, and he's done this to all of us, what his call is for us as his sons and his daughters. To be filled with the Spirit, be totally transformed into his Son, so that the Spirit would ooze out of us and drip from our fingers and our toes onto the world. How's that for an image? Oozing from your fingers and from your toes. Why do I say this? Having our eyes open is not an option in the Christian life. It's absolutely essential. Spiritual warfare is absolutely essential. So the goal of my talk tonight, I'm going to lay some foundations for the rest of the talks for this retreat. Um, we're going to get into things like, what do we mean by kingdoms? Why are there two of them? What's the nature of the war between them? Uh, we need to get into, what is the story that we're enveloped within? Who are the characters and what's the plot of this story? But more importantly, how do we read the script for this story? Right? How do we become like the prophet Elisha, that we can have our eyes open and see the story unfolding in front of us and know exactly what our role is in that story? That's for us. So in addition to laying some of those foundations, I want to rouse us to fight tonight. I want to rouse us to fight. I want us to receive from God's spiritual adrenaline to rush through our veins and to awaken us, to begin opening our eyes tonight to the realities happening in our midst. So, I want to turn to World War II for a second here. A war that we can pretty easily understand in comparison. So, it's September 1st, 1939. This guy named Hitler, you might have heard of him. He's been uh, spending some years uh, building up quite the army, you could say, and uh, while on this particular day, he decided, hey, how about we take over Poland now? So he did it. And uh, he, he went 
eastward into Poland and did the Blitzkrieg thing, and, and the rest of Europe's like, oh crap. And the UK says, uh, well, we've seen this coming, uh, we're not going to put up with this. So two days later, September 3rd, 1939, they say, we don't like that, we're going to war, Germany. UK declares war. And um, fast forward just a few months after Germany started the European war, and they had claimed pretty much all of Poland. They were fighting the Soviets over there, but they had also claimed all of France and Belgium. You know, France does their thing, and they wave the white flag. Um, but if you look at it on a map, in, in the year early 1940, Germany has claimed the better part of Europe for their territory. Right, and so the UK is like the defenders of the free world over here, just across the uh, the uh, English Channel, a few miles from France, and Germany's staring down. Well, you know they're like, okay, Germany's going to attack us. We got to be ready for this, right? So you know what they do? They oriented every facet of their life. They uh, recruited basically every single citizen into the war effort. All their priorities changed. They redirected it. Right. Okay. They they built up embattlements on the, on the coastline by the cliffs of Dover, and they recruited hundreds of thousands of men and trained them for the army. Women and children were taught what to do in the event of a gas attack. Pots and pans were collected for spare metal to build planes out of. You know, if you were a citizen, you were in this war because Hitler was coming for you. Right. The enemy was coming for them for their own houses, and so. Churchill, of course, gives his famous speech, right? We've all heard it. We'll fight them on the beaches. We'll fight them in the streets. We'll fight them in the fields. We'll fight them to the death, wherever it takes. Whatever it takes to take down this enemy. So the point, obviously, is that this is a kingdom totally engulfed in war against its enemy. This is a kingdom where... The stakes were incredibly high, right? If you've ever seen The Man in the High Castle, you can imagine a little bit of like what it was like if World War II had gone the other way. The stakes were high for them and for the whole world. And by virtue of just being British, you were in this war. You were in this war. Now, we know that the spiritual combat we're talking about here this weekend is much more profound than World War II. Much more. The Bible, the church, and the saints testify that this is a war that's been lasting far longer. This is a war with far greater stakes. And this is a war that's far more important. First Peter says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. And Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Not only is this a great battle, this is a war that doesn't cease until the day that we die. We fight to the death, quite literally. When we're baptized, every demon in hell takes aim at us and lines up to take us out. But you could flip it on the other, on its head like John Christendom did. He says, we're baptized in order to fight. Oh yeah. Now, the question for us at this point, though, is whether we believe that we're at war. And I want you to ask yourself that. Do I believe that we're at war? You know, because it's not so easy to see. You know, we can easily tell ourselves, well, I don't really see a war, maybe like politically or culturally, but that's not even really a real war, so to speak. I don't see bloodshed. I'm like, well, that's what the U.S. saw in World War II until Pearl Harbor happened, right? We thought we weren't at war either because we weren't able to see what was obviously happening right in front of us. 
St. Paul in Ephesians says, Our struggle is not with flesh and blood, not with those things that we can very easily see with our own eyes. Not against humans, not against political structures, etc. Our struggle is with the principalities, the powers, the world rulers of this present darkness, and with the evil spirits. That's why we need spiritual vision. Now, you know, we also might say to ourselves, like, well, I don't really like war analogies. You know, that might be for some people, you know, in the Christian life, but now I don't really do war. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, this is not an analogy. This is a real war. Okay? And, and I'm not just trying to, like, psychologically hype us up, so to speak. This is a real war happening all around us. You know, a saint as feminine and as flowery as St. Therese in the story of the soul she was quite a fighter. I mean, there's a there's some blog post I read one time was titled "Saint Therese is manlier than you are." <laughs> but no, in story of a soul, she it's quite a prominent part in the book. She prays with her whole might, Psalm 118, and what's it say? Just a selection from it. All the nations surrounded me, in the Lord's name I cut them off. They surrounded me on every side, in the Lord's name I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They burned up like fire among thorns. In the Lord's name, I cut them off. St. Therese. So we're at war. What's the story of this war that we find ourselves in? For anyone that likes catechism references, we're looking at paragraphs 385 to 421 if you want to go look it up by yourself at another point. But we're going to tell the story of this war a little bit. So this really all begins at creation. Now, in the beginning, there was God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, dwelling in a perfect, eternal communion of love, totally incomprehensible beyond our understanding, totally incorruptible, immutable. And then out of nothing but pure love, created all heaven and earth. Just read Genesis. Created all things. Created the plants and the animals and the soil. Created mankind and angels. And we know, of course, that only to these last two groups, mankind, ourselves, and to the angels, he gave us a special capacity to know him, to love him, to serve him, and, very importantly, to choose him. He gave us freedom. He gave us freedom. And we gave us the freedom to say no. The first ones to say no, the angels. Not just any angel, Satan, the dragon who shows up in the book of Revelation. You know, the, the, what, this, what Satan said to God was non-servium. That's Latin for I will not serve. It comes from Jeremiah. I will not serve is what he told God. To which Michael responded, who is like God? Who could be like God? That's the name for the Hebrew name, Mikael. Who is like God? And so war broke out in heaven. I'm going to read Revelation 12 a little bit to describe this war. A sign appeared in the sky. It was a huge red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on its heads were ten diadems, or seven diadems. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in the sky and hurled them down to the earth. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels battled against the dragon. The dragon and its angels fought back, but they did not prevail, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The huge dragon, the ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world, was thrown down to earth, and its angels were thrown down with it. A few verses later, the dragon became angry with the woman. This woman is Mary, and it's also the church. 
and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. The devil was cast down to earth by Michael and went off to wage war against those who keep God's commandments and bear witness to Jesus. That's us. Those who keep God's commandments and bear witness to Jesus. And, we've, and we know the story in Genesis 3 of Adam and Eve being deceived by the devil in the garden. The devil had his way with them. The Catechism says, Created in a state of holiness, man was destined to be fully divinized by God and glory. There's a lot of power in that statement. Man was created to partake of God's own life, to be like him, to love like him, to know like him, to totally be in Catechism goes on and says, But seduced by the devil, he wanted to be like God, as the devil promised, but without God, before God, and not in accordance with God. He wanted to usurp God, essentially, and take his position by eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, even though God had given them to eat of the tree of life. And so they chose death and the devil's dominion in that act. And now, you know, all of us today are Adam and Eve. You know, every time we sin, we can say that metaphorically we act like Adam and Eve in the sense that we choose against God. We, in some way, we disobey him and choose the devil's dominion. So we act like them. But it's actually, we are Adam and Eve in a deeper sense as well. It's not just in a metaphorical sense. It's more in a mystical sense, you might say. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, it deformed human nature. It's crazy. Deformed human nature and human non-nature. Pardon. Non-human nature. Human nature and non-human nature. All creation was deformed because of the sin. And they cut themselves off from the source of life and thus contracted the spiritual virus of death. They did. They were never supposed to die. They were supposed to be in union with God and have life forever with them in the garden. Now, where do we get our own human nature? You and I in our own persons. We get it ultimately from them. So what do we do? We, get in a, a, we inherit a deformed human nature that's sick. Right? We all know that death is real. And we all know that we're weak. Right? Because we inherit this uh, deformed human nature. And Hebrews actually says that we sin because we fear death. Because of the work that the devil has wrought in humanity. That's why we sin. And though we're always free, we always ultimately have responsibility, we're inclined towards sin with this broken nature. It's what we call concupiscence. We're inclined towards sin. And the worst part of it all is that we personally add in our own sins to this broken nature. That's the worst part of it all. Now, naturally, this pleases Satan. This makes him lord over us. Okay? This makes him lord over us. And what that does is it spiritually blinds us in the process. St. Paul in Romans chapter 1 refers to the Gentiles who are wrapped up in sin as having their senseless minds darkened. He's talking about spiritual blindness. Becoming totally opaque to God. Becoming totally blind to what he's doing in the world all around them and in their own minds. Becoming totally numb, perhaps even, and believing that there's no devil, there's no fight, there's no sin, and thus there's no freedom, there's no victory. That's the works of the devil. So he wants to destroy us, plain and simple. And Jesus in John 8 calls the devil a murderer from the beginning. 
You know, if God would have given him the authority, Satan would have killed Adam and Eve. He would have. But instead, all he could do was wage a proxy war by getting them to take the fruit and contract death in themselves. Not only is he a murderer, he's the father of lies, Jesus says. Father of lies. Yet already in Genesis 3, God promises to crush his head. He says the offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Already in Genesis 3. Wow. And you fast forward and flip open the Gospels, and what do you see Jesus doing left and right? He's in the desert doing battle with Satan. He's casting demons out of people and performing exorcisms. He's on the cross and rising from the dead, claiming ultimate victory over the powers of darkness. 1 John says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Plain and simple. Colossians tells us the result of this. The Father has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Transfer of lordship from Satan to Christ. And we know how this war ultimately ends. Right? We know that on the cross in the resurrection, Jesus has already dethroned Satan from his position. We know that by the love of the cross, he set us free from the grip of sin and death. Once and for all. And that at the end of the time, at the end of time, he promises to make this victory totally complete for each one of us. To take it from the cross into our own hearts. But key to this retreat is that we have a battle to fight, right? That we're kind of caught in the in-between here, right? We're caught in the in-between of Christ already claiming victory and needing to claim that victory for ourselves ultimately in our own life. That's where we're at. We're in the in-between land. So I want to turn back to World War II for just a second. D-Day. America enters the European, uh, the European theater. Welcome to the war, America. So we remember D-Day as the costliest and the bloodiest uh, the battle of World War II, the bloodiest day. Um, if you, you know, Saving Private Ryan, if you ever see it, it's quite the scene. Uh, to see them storm the beaches of Normandy. Uh, and this is a key victory for the Allies. It really was, from the burst through the incredible defenses that Germany had erected on the coast of France, because now they could proceed into the mainland. But what we often forget in focusing on the cost of Normandy is the cost even that was spent after Normandy, as they had to sweep through the rest of Europe to take back land from Germany. But focusing on the cost is actually the backwards way of looking at it. What we forget is that a beach is very different from a countryside. A beach is just a few yards, but a countryside is a whole, well, country, right? A whole country that you must proceed through to actually win the war by claiming back land from the enemy. Similarly, for us, we have those big moments in our lives where we say yes to the Lord. That's Normandy. Where we brace through his great, the great defenses of the enemy. Right? We break through his strongholds and reach the countryside. But the message here from this retreat and from my talk tonight is that there's so much more land the Lord wants us to have. He doesn't want us to just have the beach of Normandy. He wants us to have all of Europe, all of France, all of Belgium, and even Munich, and Berlin. You see, the Lord wants the victory for us. He doesn't just want it for himself. He wants us to have it in our own lives. He wants us to share the victory that he has already won 
uh, by extending, extending it in our own lives and taking back that land. He wants, to, he wants to fill us with his spirit and really transform us into himself. We might be him on earth and live with him forever. So I want to summarize a little bit the arc of this whole story and what roles we play in it and where we find ourselves. So in baptism, God claims us as his own. We become citizens of the kingdom where Jesus reigns, where he is Lord of the land. But immature citizens at first. You might say that we can't vote or smoke or drink or something like that. We become immature citizens, and God wants to raise us up. He wants to raise us up to defend our home that's under siege and bring us to maturity so that we can claim the victory with him over the enemies of his kingdom. You know, and if you want to extend this analogy, you could say whenever we choose against him, we sabotage our own kingdom, our own family so to speak. And even when we live a total life of sin, we become traitors and fight for the enemy. Fight for the enemy, not against him. And we know that he will come again in glory and make his victory definitive. definite. We don't know the day or the hour, uh, but we know that we must keep watch until that day. That's what Jesus says in the scriptures in Matthew. But that, that day and hour, no one knows. Not the angels... Not even the Son, only the Father knows when the Son of Man will come again. Watch therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the householder had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have watched and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, who his master has set over his household to give him their food in the proper time? Blessed is that servant who his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with the drunken, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know, and will punish him. And put him with the hypocrites, there men will weep and gnash their teeth. So that's the story that we're in. That's the battle that we're in. Those are the two kingdoms. That's the nature of the war that we're fighting. Cool. Cool. So what's our response? What's our posture? What do we do about it? I'm going to get us started. That's going to be the content of this whole retreat. First of all, there's no neutral ground in this war. There's no demilitarized zone. We can't sit it out or just act like we can hang out on the bench on the sidelines. Jesus says the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone enters it violently. Not only is there no neutral ground, we should expect a fight. We should expect a fight. In choosing for God, we do a kingdom transfer. We read from Colossians earlier that the Father has delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. It's like if you step into a boxing ring, you should expect your enemy to come out and try to hit you. That's where we're at. So we should expect a little bit of struggle. We should expect a little bit of hassle when we come to serve the Lord, says Sirach. You know, Oscar Robles, what he always used to tell me is, just because something's hard doesn't mean anything's wrong, man. Just because something's hard doesn't mean anything's wrong. So let's expect a fight. Third, and most importantly, it all boils down to loyalty. 
what it all boils down to. Taking our stand with Christ the victor. He leads us on. And we have a relationship with him. With a person. With God. Not some philosophy or political whatever. That's really something. You know, you just think of the bread of life discourse. When Jesus gives his followers a hard word. Scripture says, after this, many of the disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Jesus said to the twelve, do you also wish to go away? And Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. To whom else shall we go? So as we wrap up here this evening, I want to bring us back to the story of the prophet Elisha and his servant. And remembering how this servant, he wakes up and he sees the enemies arrayed before the camp. And at first he fears, and he runs to his master, Elisha. And Elisha tells him, do not be afraid. And he affirms the truth that God has arrayed his own armies against his enemies. And moreover, he prays that the servant's eyes would be open, that he too would see the power of God arrayed against his enemies. Again, we're like the servant. We need our own eyes open. We need people like Elijah in our life to pray that our eyes would be open. Right? So we can see what's going on around us. And I want to tell you that the Lord wants to do that for you this weekend. Not just this weekend, for the rest of your life, but he wants to do it this weekend. He wants to open your eyes and see what's really going on. Now, I admit it's, uh, it's one thing for me or anyone else, quite frankly, to stand up here and kind of tell you about spiritual warfare and you know, kind of present a battle plan, so to speak. But that only gets you so far because you actually have to fight the battle. You actually have to fight it. You don't learn to be a soldier by listening to lectures or watching YouTube videos, do you, Mike? That's right. You've got to train. You've got to fight. And that's what we need. That's what we need. And note how in the story, Elisha doesn't set out to give his servant a lecture. He doesn't like hand him a textbook of spiritual warfare and tell him, oh yeah, just follow these easy steps. You'll be cool, bro. That's not what he does. He simply states what's true and he prays. And God works. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. And God gives him vision. And the servant, with such vision, is able to see the script of the story unfolding right in front of him. He's able to see his own role in that story of the war. So, that vision, may that be ours. Not only that, may we be like Elisha and have people like Elisha in our lives that would pray that our eyes would be too open. So, we live in the midst of a war. We live in the midst of a war. And we have an enemy who seeks to destroy us. James says, he gives his own strategy. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you men of double mind. We belong to God, and our loyalty is to him, and the victory is his. All right. Paul of Romans says, in all these things, and he's listed off this ridiculous litany of angels and heavenly powers and whatnot, we are more than conquerors through the one who is left. 
You can just listen to what the angels sing in Revelation 12 when the devil is cast down by Michael and his angels. This is what the angels say. Now let salvation and power come, the kingdom of our God and the authority of his anointed. For the accuser of our brothers is cast out, who accuses them before our God day and night. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Love for life did not deter them from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you that dwell therein. I'm here to tell you that that song that the angels sing, that's a song that they sang when Christ defeated the devil on the cross and in the resurrection. That's the song that the angels sing every time the saint or a martyr inherits the kingdom. That's the song that they want to sing this weekend. And that's the song that we will join with them at the end of time, forever and ever. Amen.